the American Civil War. It is one of the most important and thought-provoking and also tragic, difficult, complex, and divisive issues in American history. In this defining four-year epoch that in many ways shaped and reshaped our nation, 600,000 men died under arms, not counting the number of people who died as civilians, the amount of property destroyed, and the radical changes in society that were inaugurated as a result of the war. In this brief three-part miniseries, I'm going to discuss some counterfactuals, might have been that could have changed the outcome of the American Civil War. Today, we'll start with a basic one. Could the Civil War have possibly been prevented? And if so, would it have been a good thing? I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. podcast listeners, and welcome to another thought-provoking episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Politics at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of Regent University or of the Robertson School of Government. And since we're talking about something incredibly controversial today, which is the American Civil War, I know it happened some hundred and 60-odd years ago, but it is still a source of passionate disagreement in many circles today. I need to reinforce that views do not express comment. You can find our stuff on Facebook at Blind Politics, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. So today we are going to begin a three-part series on the American Civil War. Part one, we'll discuss the question of could the Civil War have been prevented, and if so, when? Part two, we'll discuss what a Confederate victory in the Civil War might have looked like. Spoiler alert, not pretty. And part three, we'll discuss the question of Reconstruction, and could Reconstruction have been done in a way that would have been better in the long run? You could say better for the South, better for the freedmen, or with the target of Reconstruction, better for the country as a whole. Uh, spoiler alert, the answer to that question is that you'd have had to have a different 17th president. But we will talk about the many failings and foibles of Andrew Johnson in episode number three of this miniseries. So the thing about the American Civil War is that, uh, first of all, as I mentioned in the prologue to this podcast, it is probably one of the most intensely discussed and debated subjects in American history. It is a subject of rife speculation for alternate history. Most of those alternate histories or counterfactuals focus on the different outcome of a specific battle. Battle of Gettysburg, the Battle of Antietam, the famous what if Lee's lost orders had not been lost. This was a point at which General McClellan, who was the Union general, received a copy of the orders that General Robert E. Lee was going to pass to his troops on how to essentially get around the Union army and attack into Pennsylvania. And so there's speculation that Lee could have won the war in 1862, 
and we'll talk about that a little bit more next next time. But there, there's all kinds of counterfactuals that come up in relation to the Civil War. I'm not going to look at any of those specific battles, mostly because I am not a military historian, although I have been dragged around the battlefield of Gettysburg more times than I can currently recall. I used to live in central Pennsylvania in the Carlisle area, and so my dad, who was a huge Civil War buff, would always kind of take us to the battlefield. We would do a bike ride called the Apple Ride in Gettysburg in the fall, and so I have biked up and hauled my bike up those hills a number of times, and I cannot imagine charging up them in 100-degree heat in July dressed in wool uniforms. But I'm not a military historian, I'm a political scientist, so what I want to look at in these podcasts are some alternate political outcomes. And the first of these, of course, is the question of could the Civil War have been prevented? Now, if you read fiction at all, there's a recent account of this called Underground Airways by Ben Winters. Ben Winters is a very good science fiction author, and he writes an alternate history in which the Crittenden Compromise, a compromise that would have essentially prevented the federal government from tampering with slavery in any state where it still existed. The, the idea being that the Crittenden Compromise was adopted. Now, personally, I think Winters' suggested alternate history is very well written, very sort of chilling in the way that it sort of tries to create some deliberate parallels between this alternate society and society today. And also completely and totally and utterly impossible, because by the time you get to the Crittenden Compromise, nobody's interested in compromise anymore, except for Crittenden himself. So I think it's just not a tenable situation. So that raises the question of, could the Civil War have been prevented if something had been changed earlier? And the answer to that question, I would say, is that to make that change, you have to go back to the Constitution itself. So yes, my friends, we are going to discuss today the most infamous and, I would say, misunderstood article of the Constitutional Convention, and that is the Three-Fifths Compromise. Because this is the article that, in the end, inevitably sows the seeds of the Civil War in the way that it played out. So, why do I say that? it's really the three-fifths compromise that sows the seeds. Well, you have to understand that at the time of the Constitutional Convention, you have attitudes towards slavery among slaveholders themselves that are not as strident, at least in public, as the attitudes that will start to emerge in the later time period. Okay, so classic example of this, and this is just one of those little historical ironies, that we can't really deal with today because we like to see historical figures as black and white. Pun intended, because we're talking about racial perceptions here. But very few of the men in the founding generation are all one thing. So if I were to tell you that the three-fifths compromise was most bitterly opposed as something that would unduly aid the continuance of slavery, and that it was supported by somebody else, as absolutely essential to the preservation of the Union. You would assume probably through today's understanding that the guy who said we have to get rid of this did not own slaves, and the guy who said no, we have to have this to keep the the Union together was a slave owner. But you would be wrong. The most vociferous opponent of the Three-Fifths Compromise, from the perspective that it was enshrining slavery too much, was George Mason, 
And not only was George Mason himself a Virginia slave owner, but his grandson would in fact be one of the Confederate envoys trying to gain recognition from Britain, who was aboard a British sloop that was stopped by the U.S. And those two envoys were uh, sort of taken into U.S. custody in an affair called the Trent Affair, which is as close as Britain and the U.S. ever come to actually going to war over the Civil War. Because essentially the U.S. did to Britain what the Brit- what we were complaining about the British doing to us in the War of 1812. We stopped and inspected a British-flagged vessel and you know impounded the two uh, Confederate diplomats who'd been accredited, at least were, were going to be received potentially by Her Majesty's government. Now, Lincoln was able to smooth things over with Her Majesty's government, and Palmerston, the British Prime Minister, was able to successfully prevent Britain from intervening in the the Civil War, which I suspect probably would not have gone well for the British, which we will discuss in next week's podcast. But anyway, so this is the change that happens, right? And this is indicative. In the generation of the founders, it is not uncommon, it is not uncommon for slave owners to lament the existence of slavery and to wish wish to see it overturned. A significant percentage of the men who made up the New York Manumission Society were themselves slave owners who worked tirelessly to abolish an institution from which they were benefiting. Okay, this is partially a result of it's the founding generation. People realize that there's a novus ordo secularum, a new order for the ages, and there's a real recognition at the time of the founders that there's an incompatibility here. There's an incompatibility between liberty for ourselves and slavery for others. And so there are a lot of people who are uncomfortable with this. Doesn't mean all of them freed their slaves. Doesn't mean all of them lived into their principles. But they recognize that there is hypocrisy here, and some of them actually did take steps to try to eliminate slavery. And there was a difference between their public conduct and their private conduct. We today would call that hypocrisy. But I'm not sure that it's better if you have someone who is a total jerk in private and a total jerk in public. You know, I don't, I'm not sure it's better if you have someone who's a racist in private and a racist in public. Is that better than having someone who is a slave owner who's working to actually abolish slavery? It seems to me like when you're talking about major human rights issues, sometimes you take help where you can get it. But that's probably a d- debate for a longer podcast some, some other time. Anyway, so there is this moment at which even many slave owners are recognizing that the peculiar institution is not compatible with the principles of liberty for which they have just fought, for which many have died, to which they pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And so the question of the three-fifths compromise comes about. And so the three-fifths compromise, what is it all about? It is about the question of how are people going to be represented or, or counted in terms of representation if they are unfree? Now, again, from the modern perspective, we might think the people who want to see slaves counted as a whole person for purposes of representation would be the abolitionists, but you would be, again, wrong. The people who want to see slaves counted as a whole person for representation were, in fact, the slave owners, because they had a different understanding of a representative than did people in the North. And we're already starting to see here the seeds of what would become the key divide in the Civil War, and that is your conception of society. So for many slave owners, they saw themselves as essentially the head of an extended family. They saw this this view of the extended family, a sort of patriarchal 
family structure in which there is a kind of socialism that operates from each according to his ability to each according to his needs is sort of the, the underlying economic principle. But it's all within the basis of a hierarchical and patriarchal structure in which you have an extended family. Slaves are part of the family, but we have to keep in mind that when we're talking about family here. We're not talking about Ozzie and Harriet or Leave it to Beaver or your nice modern nuclear family. We're talking more about the Roman paterfamilias who had the right of absolute life and death over his wife, his children, and his slaves. That's the type of family that we're talking about here. Okay, it is not the benevolent nuclear family of sort of the, the modern sitcom age. It's not even really the chivalric concept of, of family where a man is protecting and, and providing for his wife and children. Because the family includes those who are bound in servitude to that family. And they are resources at the disposal of the head of the family. This is a view of politics that is succinctly expressed by Sir Robert Filmer, who is the chief antagonist of John Locke. And I should say, to be fair to the traditions of the English Tories, of, of whom Filmer was not really representative, but whom you know, Locke sort of picked him out as the representative of, of British Toryism, Filmer is not really representative. His idea of the sort of complete, unlimited, and natural power of patriarchs of kings. He saw the divine right of kings as a natural institution, and that there are some that are essentially naturally born or created to rule. And Locke attacks this argument because he th thinks Filmer is absolutely looney tunes, and he can use him to discredit his political opponents. Essentially, Locke's first treatise on government is an example of nutpicking. Nutpicking is this online phenomenon where you find a crazy person on the other side, Let's just call the person, if you're on the left, Steve King, the late unlamented congressman from Iowa's 4th Congressional District, who has now been defeated in a primary, probably one of the few really salutary political events of 2020. Or we could call, at least thus far, or we could call that person, if you're talking on the right, the still current representative from New York's 14th Congressional District, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or Ilhan Omar from Minnesota's 5th, or, you know, one of these other people. But really, for it to be satisfying nut picking, you have to pick a random state legislature or city council member from the opposing party who says something absolutely bananas, and then you say, this is essentially what all Democrats believe or what all Republicans believe. It's very popular. It's very clickbaity. It's very social media, very much the social media thing. And uh, John Locke is very, like, deliberately involved in this. The problem being that later, because Locke essentially takes Filmer's ideas and makes them popular, Filmer will become the political theorist du jour for a guy named George Fitzhugh, who articulates what I think is probably the, the most clear, consistent, and coherent pro-slavery ideology. And by clear, consistent, and coherent, I by no means mean that it is not also terrifying, horrifying, and ridiculously totalitarian in his Sociology of the South and also Cannibals All. Fitzhugh, I think, is the closest to a true, genuine American fascist political theorist. And if you don't believe me, you can read his stuff and look at the way in which he combines a uh, fundamental belief in inequality with all of the negative aspects of socialist economics. So anyway, that's the direction that ultimately the pro-slavery ideology goes. But at this point, it's still embryonic, and it's still reflected in these, the idea of slave owners that they should, in some sense be able to count their unfree bonded slaves, their bonded labor, you know, those who are, are essentially bound to the land and bound to, the, to their service, uh, in terms of representation. Because they represent this whole ex extended family and they represent the slaves. The irony, of course, is that this is exactly the principle to which the American Revolution was opposed. It's the idea of virtual representation that you colonies are dependencies of Great Britain. And so 
we can virtually represent you because we are the mother country, the father country. We, we are the patriot. It's the same thing. It's the same principle at work in essentially the pro-slavery ideology. It is directly contradictory to the idea of personal actual representation. It is the northern states who say, or the, the free states, because at this point, not all the northern states have manumitted their slaves. Manumission is still in the process of being debated in New York and actually won't come to fruition until the 1890s. More on that in a second. But it's the free states who say, wait a minute, you don't get to count people that aren't free. This is what we just fought the whole war about. All right. The purpose of the American Revolution comes back to the idea of actual representation. Representation is for free people. And so if you are free, you get to be represented. And if you are not free, then you can't be represented. So you cannot say people are unfree, but then count them in terms of representation because we just fought a war about that, guys. Okay, so that's the argument on the other side. And it's a very compelling argument. It is a very compelling argument even to many slave owners at the revolutionary period because it's true. It is, it is in fact, what the war was all about. And so the compromise is that we will partially count Right? So we don't want to fully acknowledge this principle that the slave owner can sort of be the representative of these unfree people, because that will pretty much mean that the whole revolution was a farce. So you can't count them the same. But if we don't let the slave-owning states count them at all, they're probably not going to ratify the Constitution. And the ratification principle is that you need a majority of the states to actually ratify. And you're not getting a majority without some sort of compromise. So probably... This is the point at which the Civil War becomes inevitable. Now, thinking back to your constitutional history, your civics classes, which all of you I know are very well versed in, representation affects one house of the legislature, the House of Representatives. All right, so what the three-fifths compromise does is it, it, it essentially gives the slave states an unfair advantage in the House because they are going to get more representation for people that they never have any intention of freeing. All right, they're going to get to count those people, so they get to, they're overrepresented in the, in, in the legislature. It's definitely not one man, one vote. So then all the action moves to the Senate. So why is this such a concern for, for slave owners? Well, because they, they recognize the fact that, especially at the time, they're keenly aware of the fact that the principles of the American Revolution are not consistent with the maintenance of chattel slavery. It's pretty obvious. It's obvious to Jefferson, slave owner. It's obvious to George Mason, slave owner. It's obvious to John Jay, kind of sort of slave owner. He would have a tendency of, of essentially he would he would buy, buy slaves, give them an apprenticeship, and then set them free at age 25. And he ends up ends up sort of becoming the leader of the manumission society in New York and, and creating the gradual abolition bill in, in New York State. Alexander Hamilton, not a slave owner, by the way, understood this. George Washington. Slave owner, freed his slaves at his death, understood this, right? It's a, it's a pretty wide consensus at the time. But then you've got societies where slavery is really, really integral to the economy. South Carolina, for example. John Lawrence, son of a South Carolina slave owner, understood this, tried to raise a regiment of African-American soldiers from freed slaves in South Carolina. Essentially, his, his plan was, let's free the slaves, arm them, and, and have them fight and offer slaves their freedom if they fight in the American Revolution. Uh, John Lawrence understood the, the incongruities here. Lots of people did. But it would have been economically ruinous. And, and there's a real concern that if it goes this way, that if, there's, if the, the slave states don't maintain this advantage, that eventually slavery is going to be overturned. That a 
republic that has founded itself essentially on the principles of the Declaration of Independence is not going to put up with this fundamental inequality on the basis of racial slavery forever. And so we have the, the Three-Fifths Compromise, which pushes the debate into the Senate. And what it essentially does is it kicks the can down the road because the House is not really in a position where it's ever going to abolish slavery. Everybody's confident of that because of the Three-Fifths Compromise. But wait, then you have a situation where the Senate is up for grabs. The Senate could be a, a primary actor moving to um, really change the balance in slavery. And the Senate confirms political appointees. The Senate confirms justices of the Supreme Court. The Senate is has a pretty important legislative role. But wait, there's more. As the country expands westward, new states are being added. And so even with the three-fifths compromise, this massive advantage that the slave states are counting on having in the House of Representatives starts to get undermined as you start adding a bunch of new states where slavery is not the dominant economic system. See, when we're talking about the Civil War, we're talking about a conflict of visions, a war of mutually incompatible political and economic systems. One of them is slavery. Slavery becomes an economic system. It becomes a political system. It becomes a philosophy. It becomes essentially a way of life. A way of life is based on it, that has an unofficial aristocracy, that has an ideology, the pro-slavery ideology of George Fitzhugh. Most other pro-slavery authors, by the way, in my opinion, are, are going down the road that will inevitably take them to Fitzhugh. Fitzhugh is the inevitable result of the maintenance of, of slavery in the South. You have to reject John Locke. You have to embrace the ideas of, of Robert Filmer. Eventually, you get to where Fitzhugh is. And I don't really see any way around that. And so that's one system. It is socialism without equality. That's the basic underlying economic system of slavery. Socialism without, e without equality. They accept, Calhoun accepts, Fitzhugh accepts, many of these authors accept both Marx's critique of capitalism and the idea for each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. They just fundamentally reject Marx's doctrine of the equality of man. So they would say yes, from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. But abilities and needs are unequal. And so because of that, you're going to have certain things that are distributed to those who are fit to rule and certain things to those who are distributed to those who are unfit to rule. That's slavery. Okay. The other system is capitalism. I want to reinforce that point. So I'm going to pause and say that again. The mutually incompatible systems that are essentially the drivers of conflict in the Civil War are slavery and capitalism. They're not mutually constitutive. Slavery did not create capitalism. Slavery did not support capitalism. The people who supported slavery hated capitalism. They saw capitalism as the enemy. They saw capitalism as the force that was going to destroy their way of life and destroy their economic system. Because ultimately it did. Because the fundamental basis of the capitalist system is the idea of the labor theory of value. This is John Locke. This is Adam Smith. This is basic capitalist theory 101, which is that you do work and I pay you for that work. And that determines the, the, the amount that I'm willing to pay you for your labor determines the value of the thing that you produce. All of that is based on contract. And the fundamental rate of exchange here is money for labor. Money for labor is not compatible with slavery. You cannot have both of them in the same economic system. It does not work. Okay, this is the thing that is the most irritating to me 
about the 1619 Project. Just side brief rant. Okay, were there capitalists who profited off the slave trade? Yes. Yes, there were. Capitalism, as an economic system, is neutral about the thing being bought and sold. Okay, so you can have good capitalism and bad capitalism. There are things that should not be sold. There are things that should not be commodified. We shouldn't have capitalist everything. However, capitalism as a widespread system is incompatible with slavery. It can profit off of it, but it will kill it inevitably. Because capitalism relies on the idea of labor for money, of a monetary exchange for labor. That is the fundamental unit of the free market capitalist system. You do something, you get paid for that thing. Okay, That unit of exchange is the fundamental basis. And so you can't have unfree labor and free labor both coexisting in a capitalist system. You can have people who are paid a pittance. You can have people who are paid unfair wages. You can have people who are, are essentially working in a capitalist system but are in grinding poverty. But you cannot have slavery in capitalism. It's incompatible. So the idea that somehow slavery is the foundation of the American political and economic system is a fundamental misunderstanding of slavery. It is a fundamental misunderstanding of economics. It is a fundamental misunderstanding of capitalism. And it is a fundamental misunderstanding of the American system that was born out of the ideas of men like Locke and Smith, that was the thing for which the American Revolution was fought, and that became the dominant system in most of the United States. Okay, these are fundamentally inc incompatible systems. That doesn't mean that capitalism is perfect. It doesn't mean that capitalism doesn't have flaws. It doesn't mean that capitalism unrestrained can't produce bad outcomes. It's just an inescapable empirical fact that capitalism and slavery are incompatible. And everybody at the time recognizes this fact. Okay? A bunch of Marxist historians today might look back and try to obscure things because they're interested in pushing their own narrative about capitalism. And there are some legitimate critiques of capitalism. Don't get me wrong. I've, I've talked about capitalism and virtue on this show before. And I think that there are certain things that should not be commodified. There should be limits on the capitalist system. But saying that capitalism and slavery are the same thing is absolutely economically illiterate and ridiculous. And the, the fact that historians and so-called economists are claiming this is absurd. It is completely absurd. If you ask anybody in the 1860s, they recognize the fact that these are fundamentally incompatible. John Calhoun recognizes it. George Fitzhugh recognizes it. Everybody in the South who's defending their system by saying we treat our slaves better than you treat your workers because they've accepted Marx's critique of capitalism understands the incompatibility. And they are trying to use those arguments to gain the upper hand over the, over the capitalists. Okay, these are not the same. The capitalists also recognize that these are not the same. I'm going to give you a quote from Benjamin Wade, senator from Ohio. And his quote is, every steamship is an abolitionist. Every steamship is an abolitionist. You could say the same thing about every new piece of equipment that replaced, that, that essentially is a machine that makes agriculture more efficient, with the exception of the cotton gin. We'll talk about the cotton gin here in a second. But by and large, the more you can innovate, mechanize things, the more you have a free labor system where people are getting paid for, for the work that they do, the less slavery is going to be attractive or exceptional, acceptable. So that's the thing that scares the slave owners. It's capitalism. It's the spread of capitalism. It's the spread of the idea of free labor. It's the idea that as there are more free states, there are going to be more people who are working, who want to preserve their jobs, who are going to oppose the expansion of slavery. You know, a lot of people have made the argument 
that industrial slavery was, was something that, that could have happened. I think that's impossible, long term. Now, some of the, somebody in the slave trade states might have tried it, but the fact is we actually know what happens when you put, essentially, an industrial slave system versus a capitalist system in terms of production. What happens is the capitalist system outproduces the, the industrial slavery system every single time by a ridiculous margin. The United States outproduced Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, which are the two most prominent examples of industrialized slavery in the 21st or the 20th century. <coughs> Excuse me. All of this uh, anger at people's ridiculous historical notions has apparently made me cough. So, this is why the Three-Fifths Compromise becomes so important, because from the beginning, from the time period of the Constitution, slave owners are trying to preserve slavery because they can see what's coming. Now, let's pause it for a second. The idea that the Three-Fifths Compromise doesn't happen. You're probably going to have to give the slave owners something else. So let's say that the compromise is this. We're going to go with the idea of the American Revolution of actual representation. If you want to count people, you have to free them. At a minimum, you have to free them. And this is kind of an argument that will eventually get us to universal male suffrage. So three-fifths compromise does not go through. As a result of this, you have to give the slave owners something to compensate for, or the slave state something to compensate for, the fact that they're not going to get this advantage in representation. And so my initial thought here is that the, the offer is that property rights are something that is specifically going to be left to the jurisdiction of the states. This is something that I think could appease the slave owners, or slave, slave states, I should say, in the short run, because they will see that this as something that essentially means that there is no way that slavery can ever be undone in their states. However, it doesn't actually resolve the issue of what are you going to do about new states that are added to the Union? So what happens if there's no three-fifths compromise? Does the Constitution still get ratified? Well, there's another possible way this could go, other than that sort of property idea. That is that the Constitution could say that the question of counting unfree persons for representation shall be decided by the first Senate to convene after the Constitution is ratified. Now, this would be a nice little tricky maneuver because it would really incentivize the slave states to ratify the Constitution quickly so that they can make sure that there's not a quorum of states that are free. The catch here being that I'm not sure you get a Virginia legislature, for example, that picks senators that are going to vote the way the slave states would want them to vote in this particular instance. In other words, you may get somebody like George Mason as a senator. You may get somebody who is a supporter of Thomas Jefferson's, who, who doesn't support the preservation of slavery. But let's say there's no three-fifths compromise in the Constitution, and there is no proportionate formula like that. Now, the most likely outcome in that situation is that you do not have a United States that looks the way the United States looks today, in the sense that North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, or at least South Carolina and Georgia, probably North Carolina, will not ratify the Constitution in this eventuality. Virginia, I think, ultimately ratifies. Virginia, probably the, the Bill of Rights satisfies people sufficiently that they will eventually ratify. And if that happens, if Virginia ratifies 
a constitution without the three-fifths compromise. My judgment is that Virginia probably eventually gets to something like what New York has with graduated uh, gradual manumission. Remember, the New York manumission law that is eventually passed abolishes slavery for all people by 1830. So it's a very gradual, very slow process, but it doesn't allow uh, sales south. In other words, you can't, if someone is enslaved in New York, you can't sell them south. Uh, so that, if that ends up happening in Virginia as well, then you will eventually see the, the abolition of slavery in Virginia. And that's going to have a dramatic effect on Southern states. Now, if you are able to keep South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina in the union, and there's no three-fifths compromise, and essentially only three persons are counted for terms of, uh, in terms of representation, and if you still get an abolition of the slave trade in the United States in 1808, as Upper South states start following the precedent set by New York, and in this, in this case we have Virginia doing that first, and I would say Virginia does that first probably because of advocacy of men like Washington and Jefferson and Mason. You could see Washington actually making a very rare public appearance on behalf of such a gradual manumission idea. Washington is very close to Alexander Hamilton, to John Jay, to men like that. And so I could see him supporting something like that. There's not a lot of evidence one way or the other, but I think based on the content of his character, of his friendships, and of what he ultimately did in his own personal life, I suspect that's probably a position that he would have come down in support of. So you have a situation in which if the upper states start abolishing slavery, even if it's a gradual process, and one of the components of that is no sale south, then you're going to have an issue of potentially slave shortage. And so you're going to have those deep south states really pushing for slave labor in some other form, getting, getting new slaves in, in some other form. But would, would abolition come as quickly if slavery only survives in a few states? Maybe. Maybe you see something like the 1830s or 1840s. Probably this is not going to lead to a dramatic amendment like the 13th Amendment, though. You're probably not going to see the 14th Amendment which creates things like the equal protection precedent and so on and so forth. Those reconstruction amendments are probably not going to happen at any time soon, if at all. You might just have a situation where, for example, universal suffrage gets extended gradually state by state. So do we get a better racial balance in the United States in the long run? I think it's really impossible to tell. Does sort of a, you know, a couple of decades difference in the length of slavery change the eventual outcome, or sort of a more gradual approach to abolition to that sort of change the outcome in the long run. I'm not necessarily sure that it does. I think you could end up having a situation that looks fairly similar to what we have today when all is said and done, but it's not, it's not really clear. Now, that is the counterfactual that I think is the most likely for avoiding the Civil War. And I should say also that there's a pretty good chance it does not work out well. There's a pretty good chance that some of the southern states don't ratify the Constitution. And in that case, what you're going to essentially have are what I would call cotton republics. The other major shift that happens around this time is the discovery of the cotton gin, which makes processing cotton much more effective and efficient and, and sort of gives new life to the slave system from an economic perspective. Right. So people always talk, and this again, I'm going to rant briefly again about the 1619 Project. People always talk about Slave, capitalism as though it somehow is, is a parasitical system off slavery. The opposite is the case. Okay, 
slavery is is preserved to a certain extent by a capitalist invention, the cotton gin. It's also undermined by capitalist inventions like the steam like the steamship, like the development of new factories, new industrial factories and processes that leads to the development of a working class. Slavery and the working class, by the way, incompatible. <laughs> you can't have both, at least not in a capitalist system. So, you know, the cotton gin does potentially allow for some of the Deep South states to survive as these sort of independent cotton, we'll call them sort of cotton republics. What's interesting is that you could see sort of a confederacy that includes, you know, the Carolinas, maybe Georgia, possibly East and West Florida eventually. West Florida at the time is Spanish, East Florida is Spanish, but very, very thinly populated, as well as some of the Caribbean states. And so I've, I've kind of played around with this idea in, in um, an alternate history project that I haven't really had time to do much with, but you could actually see the sort of preservation of a system that kind of maintains that slave system much later in history, actually, as a result of no fifth, the three-fifths compromise. Because if there's not that pressure from outside, if these, if these countries are independent or if they league together with, with you know, people in Louisiana and other parts of the sort of French colonial and British colonial empire that want a, an exit, that want to sort of join with Carolina as a result of some sort of uh, attempt to, to sort of hang together and preserve slavery then you could see something that survives. Now, as I discuss in the second podcast, that country would essentially look a lot like a, a CSA post-civil, you know, if, if they want, if the Confederacy won the Civil War, that form of the CSA, which means that it would be a basket case. Slavery is a, is a bad economic system. It's not good at producing the things that makes capitalism a somewhat better economic system. Not a perfect economic system, not an economic system that doesn't have problems, but one that is better at making stuff and producing stuff and distributing stuff than command economies. And you can't have slavery without a command economy. It doesn't work. So you'd be looking at a real mess of a country there. So without the three-fifths compromise, it's possible that if you can find a way to keep the slave states in, you get something that eventually leads to sort of gradual abolition, no civil war. Maybe eventually we get to today, right? Maybe eventually we get to today. This is not a scenario that guarantees you a better outcome. There's a possibility of a better outcome. After the Three-Fifths Compromise, I don't see any way that you can possibly avoid the Civil War. So let's say there's no compromise of 1820. Well, then you have slave states that are, are wanting to potentially secede sooner if there's not sort of a compromise on adding new states. You know, what if Henry Clay doesn't essentially kick the can down the road? One of the critiques of Henry Clay is that his compromises preserved slavery. That's one way of looking at it, you know, that, that he was willing to sacrifice slavery to preserve the Union. Another way of looking at it is that because the Civil War happens in the 1860s, it makes it much more likely the Union is going to win. The Union has begun the process of becoming an industrial powerhouse by that point. That process is not nearly as far along in 1820 or 1840 or any of the other times at which the Civil War could have broken out previously if there weren't those compromises. Now, the one exception to that, of course, is 1852. The Compromise of 1852 is just an unalloyed disaster. It's an absolutely ridiculous idea, and it completely vitiates the idea that the Confederacy has anything to do with states' rights. It's all about the preservation of slavery, and we can say that because they were perfectly comfortable trampling on the rights of northern states to not return fugitive slaves. I mean, the whole point of the Fugitive Slave Act, which is part of that Compromise of, of 1850, 
is to deputize northern states in the preservation of slavery in the South. And this is the kind of thing that it's a burr under the saddle of, of the North. It's a burr under the saddle of the free soilers and the capitalist system because they are now being told that they have to be deputized. They have to act as agents of a hostile economic power. And so that doesn't go well. And so eventually the free states get fed up. And that's why they elect Abraham Lincoln. They, they choose Lincoln over Douglas because Lincoln says this is ridiculous. We're not going to continue compromising our system to adapt to these people. No more expansion of slavery, period, end of discussion. That's the whole premise of, of Lincoln's argument. He's not, he's not an immediate abolitionist. He's a free soiler. No new slave states. And so the whole goal of, as discussed previously, the whole goal of the slave states is to continuously expand their numbers within the United States. Expand territory, expand slavery to new territories, because they recognize that's the only way they can preserve their system. They have to either expand or they have to co-opt those who disagree with their system and force them to act as agents of the preservation of slavery. And eventually, the northern public gets fed up with it. It's not necessarily because people in the north are not racist. It's because they recognize the fact that this is an economic system that's hostile to them. You know, if you're poor and you work and you're making money as a result of that, and you think I'm better off as a free person than a slave, then this spread of slavery is a direct threat to you. And so, you know, not everybody's necessarily on the the side of the angels who's who's fighting for the union. Sometimes there's a lot of self-interest involved. But we have to recognize that there is a fundamental incompatibility here between slavery and the capitalist system that that starts to dominate in the union. And so the only way you see an actual prevention of of the Civil War is if things are tilted much more dramatically in favor of the non-slave states, the free states, earlier on. And then the outcomes range from maybe you get to today, maybe you get something slightly better than today, to maybe you get something much worse in parts of the United States as they don't ratify the Constitution, they break off as independent countries, and you have these sort of, the equivalent of banana republics, we call them con republics in this case, that are just an absolute mess. Okay, so that's going to do it for this podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Next podcast, we will address the question of of what would have happened if the Confederates had won the American Civil War. If you think the answer is it would be pretty terrible, you are correct. If you think you know why it would be pretty terrible, you might or might not be correct. But we will delve into that in the next podcast. Please remember to tell your friends, tell your family members, tell the people that you meet in a socially distanced way at any of the various places that you are currently allowed to go to, to subscribe to Blind Politics. And yeah, that's that's a wrap for this episode. So this is Dr. Nolte for Blind Politics, signing off. <laughs>